Bonjour, monsieur. Uh, un sandwich, uh, fromage, jambon, s'il vous plaît. I have absolutely no idea what you just said, but thank you very much. I greatly well, I appreciate it. I just ordered it. a uh, uh, ham and cheese sandwich. And uh, of course, uh, if I had uh, called you monsieur during the French Revolution, I would have had my uh, head cut off. The guillotine. Well, don't count your uh, eggs just yet. You may get your head decapitated anyways. But it feels like you're a world away. Where are you? I am uh, I'm far away. I'm at home. I'm at home for different reasons. But yes, I, I am, I'm at home today. Well, speaking of the French and speaking of worlds away, we've got the author of Hero of Two Worlds, Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. He's going to be joining us. Mike Duncan. We'll see you in a second. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode, the third episode in the second season of the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass, and over there is Monsieur Alan Joaquin. There you go. Good to see you, man. Good to uh, good to see you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very special guest on the show. We know that you're going to thoroughly enjoy this conversation. I am thoroughly enjoying the book, Hero of Two Worlds. But before we get Mike Duncan on the line first... This week in history. All right, so my selection for this week in history takes place October 2nd, 1780. And actually, it was because I was reading this book, Hero of Two Worlds, and I was like, oh man, that's just right around the corner because it mentions uh, the situation with Major John Andre and Benedict Arnold, that, that moment in time, that infamous moment in time your buddy benedict arnold anyways so major john andre is hanged on october 2nd 1780 he is hanged as a spy in front of the whole continental army now that uh that is two spies two spy hangings in two weeks we remember last week with uh, nathan hell uh the spy for the americans right yeah we all remember that of course we Got that carved into our chest. Anyways, so Major John Andre, catching him, this proved that Benedict Arnold had actually committed treason. They found some incriminating evidence on him, and Benedict Arnold had been given command of West Point. So they catch Major John Andre by sheer happenstance or luck or divine providence, as our good friend George Washington would always say. So he is caught, he is arrested. And Marquis de Lafayette, Alexander Hamilton, and a few others start talking to him. They're like, man, this guy is really awesome. Do we have to hang him? Do we have to hang him? Can't we just kill him like, like a regular soldier? They requested that Washington have him shot instead of hanged as a, as a spy. But Washington was like, nah, I don't think so. He's a spy. So he died by hanging. And Arnold, uh, Benedict Arnold, got away uh, to become a general of the British. What a jerk. All right, that's my This Week in History. My This Week in History, you got to fast forward a bit to 1939, during World War II. Now, the Soviets and the Germans signed a non-aggression pact uh, because Germany knew that if it went to war, it didn't want to have to fight France and Britain on one side and the Soviets on the other, so it became friends with them. Um, 
And in the process, they ended up divvying up Poland. So on September the 1st, Nazi Germany and Slovakia invade Poland. And on September the 17th, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east. You know, the Soviets had been fighting the uh, Japanese for quite some time. And there was a border conflict that had just ended on September the 16th. September 17th, the Soviets invaded. And uh, uh, Warsaw was under siege. And on the 28th, Warsaw surrendered to the Germans. So, you know, the, uh, the remaining German soldiers, I'm sorry, the remaining Polish soldiers withdrew from Warsaw. Uh, there were about 18,000 civilians that were killed. And at the same time, the Soviets and the Germans, who philosophically hated each other, decided, okay, we're going to divvy up Eastern Europe. Uh, Soviets were like, you know, we want Eastern Poland. We want the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. We want Finland. And we wanted an area known as Bessarabia, which was part of Eastern Romania. Uh, that part had been part of Russia before World War I. So, you know, that all that took place um, September the 28th of 1939. And, you know, the uh, kind of that whole friendship between the Soviets and Germans ended a few years later, June 22nd, 1941, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. And then on January of 1945, the Soviets came back and they captured Poland. So, or Warsaw rather. So uh, really bad history for, for Poland. But again, it was September 28th of 1939 when Warsaw surrendered and Germany and Soviet Union divvied, that, divvied up the Eastern European continent. Yeah, definitely not a great time to be uh, in Poland. No. Well, that is This Week in History. All right, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we are going to have the author of Hero of Two Worlds, Mike Duncan, on the show, and we are very much looking forward to the conversation. All right, everyone. So we've got Mike Duncan on the line. Mike, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Well, it is a uh, it is a real honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, can't wait to just dive into just this book on Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, so much to talk about. And the first question I've got for you is: In 2013, you began your Revolutions podcast that has covered numerous revolutions. So how did you come to choose Lafayette as your revolutionary subject for the new book? Well, when I was working on the podcast, uh, Lafayette turned into something like an unofficial mascot of the show because I was doing, you know, the se very early on, like the second series was on the American Revolution. And I knew that I needed to pay some, like a little bit of extra attention to some of the people who I knew were going to show up in the French Revolution, which I was planning on having be the third season. So, uh, like, for example, Tom Paine uh, is a major player in both the American Revolution, and then he shows up over in the French Revolution. And then, like, Lafayette shows up, this 19-year-old teenager who's, you know, uh, kicking around with Washington. And I'm like, okay, I need to pay some attention to this guy. And I did, and then I, we moved over to the French Revolution, and I was actually quite surprised to find how big of a role he played in the French Revolution. I just thought he, maybe he was there. He had done a few things. Um, certainly the way he's portrayed is, is as not being a, a major figure, an influential figure after about 1789. And as I was going through the French Revolution, I found that to be really not the case, that uh, 
beginning as early as 1786 in the lead up to the French Revolution, and then in 1790, 1791, 1792, Lafayette is one of the most famous, popular, and influential political figures in France for the, for the whole first phase of the French Revolution. And it's not until he runs afoul of the Jacobins when the French Revolution radicalizes that he gets sort of thrown overboard uh, and winds up in an Austrian prison. But I thought to myself uh, when I was writing that show, okay, this is probably the end of him because most of what I know about Lafayette is that, you know, after the French Revolution, he doesn't do much. And then as I continued, I'm, I'm writing, uh, you know, I'm writing series on the Haitian Revolution, and I find Lafayette, an older Lafayette, suddenly in correspondence with the leaders of Free Haiti. Uh, I'm doing series on the on Spanish American independence. I'm, I'm reading biographies of Simone Bolivar, and I, I come across all these pages where Bolivar is in, in, you know, moderately extensive correspondence with Lafayette, who Bolivar looked to as somebody uh, as somebody to look up to, as somebody who had done sort of what Bolivar was trying to do in South America. And then I get into the revolutions of 1830, and I find Lafayette involved in like these secret, like underground conspiracies to overthrow uh, Louis XVIII. And then he's a he's a major player again uh, in the revolution of 1830 when he's now like he's not like a 70 year old man trying to squeeze back into his old National Guard uniform. Um, and so by this point, I've done that. You know, the revolution of 1830 was season six of the show, and this guy, the Marquis de Lafayette, has shown up in more places and in more episodes. And this is still true to this day. He's shown up in more places and more episodes uh, than any other revolutionary figure in the podcast. And so as you know, my first book was winding down and my publisher was asking me, what, you know, what would you maybe like to do for a second book? I was like, I've got this guy Lafayette that I just cannot shake. Uh, and I would really like to go back to the very beginning of his life and tell the story of this incredibly pivotal period in, in European history and Atlantic history and in world history uh, between 1776 and like 1830 that he was clearly such a major player in uh, and who I don't think had really ever quite gotten his due. He's always portrayed as like a secondary figure. And I think that really uh, uh, bringing him to the forefront as his own figure and his own main, uh, the main character of his own story, I think really helps uh, uh, define what that era was about. So, you know, that's where it all comes from is just, he was everywhere and I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of him. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, and, and this book does a, a great job of bringing him to the forefront. And, and like you said, I think you're giving Lafayette his due in this book. It is really incredible. Let me ask you this. Now, Lafayette was a man of nobility. So, you know, why would he even want to fight in a revolution that is overthrowing a noble royalty form of government for uh, what was at the time a confederation of, uh, of states that rejected yeah, there's a, yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there, there is a very funny incongruity between, especially like once the French truly get involved with like, you have the, you, this, this absolutist monarchy and all these French aristocrats helping these like Anglo-Protestant farmers form a republic. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense on paper. Um, but of course, they were all trying to stick it to the British. That was the main thing, uh, which is which is a big answer. <laughs> like, why did Lafayette go over there so he can kill Englishmen? Um, but I think in the in the in the bigger picture, Lafayette, you know, if, if you read in the book, you know, he sort of grows up on the periphery of the nobility, you know, sort of he grows up on these rustic estates. But he's brought in in his early adolescence, like into Paris and then into really, truly the inner circle 
of the French aristocracy in Versailles. I mean, he is lit as a teenager. He is literally palling around with the future King Louis the 16th, with Marie Antoinette, uh, with the future Kings of like the Comte de Provence and the Comte d'Artois, who are both going to wind up themselves being Kings of France. He was in the inner circle of the nobility and Lafayette was not a hundred percent impressed with the material that he saw in front of him, uh, in terms of who these people were, um, how intelligent he thought they were, how well he thought they governed the country. And when he goes over to, you know, he's, he has these ideas floating around in his head that like maybe hereditary aristocracy isn't everything that is cracked up to be like, we all tell ourselves this story that we as aristocrats deserve to rule France because we are somehow like almost superior beings. This was a sort of the prevailing ideology of the ruling class of France at the time, like your blue blood almost made you um, like almost a completely different species from commoners. And Lafayette was not actually that impressed with the people that that he saw around him. And then when he goes over to the United States, uh, he's meeting people like uh, like Alexander Hamilton, who is clearly, you know, some kind of uh, uh, military and financial genius who was just, you know, the bastard, uh, like an orphan from a colony in the middle of nowhere who was rising up on the strength of his own merit and talent. He meets somebody like Henry Knox, who was just selling books before the war and is now leading and doing quite a good job leading the American artillery uh, in the Continental Army. So he's, he's running into people who sort of in terms of uh, the difference between aristocracy and commoners are commoners who are coming from nowhere, but who are because of their intelligence, because of their talent, because of you know, their wits and their courage are really accomplishing something that really they have no business accomplishing, which is, which is breaking away from the British Empire. And then when he comes back to France, he goes back to looking around at all of these, you know, vicomps and, and, uh, and dukes and princes. And he's like, you know, you guys are selling yourselves a story here about how great you are, but really you're running this kingdom into the ground. And Lafayette, from a very early age, like one of the first decisions that I think he really makes politically is that this notion of hereditary aristocracy, which he himself obviously benefits from you know he's he comes out of the hereditary aristocracy um he he walks away from all of this convinced that hereditary aristocracy is for the birds and that if you want to actually have a country or a kingdom or a republic run well you need to open up the offices and you need to open up the leadership positions to simply people of talent uh where what you do matters quite a bit more than who you are or who your parents were which is like who your parents were is one of the dumbest ways that you could possibly choose uh, people to run your country. You should have uh, people who um, uh, people who perform well, not just people who uh, happen to be born in a certain uh, nursery. Well, let me ask you. Now, I know, you know, Thomas Paine's uh, pamphlet came out in, uh, in, in January of uh, 1776. And I know that he hadn't uh, he hadn't arrived yet. Um, uh, Lafayette hadn't arrived yet in the United States. In fact, it uh, wasn't even a United States at the time. And, and Payne's, book, Payne's pamphlet really questioned the whole idea of a hereditary system. But Lef what, what would you say was Lafayette's biggest motivation to come and fight and offer his services uh, in the new nation? Was it, you know, was it really wanting action and adventure that kind of led him to wanting you know, Pete, uh, was it the um, freedom and liberty or was it a, was he embracing liberty and 
you know, freedom that led him to adventure and action? Or was it just that he hated the British so much because of, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what would you say was his biggest motivation that led to obviously loving either the freedom and liberty or the action and adventure? What, what would you say about that? I mean, I think the two basically exist side by side. Um, I think if you had to do like a chicken or the egg uh, choice between like which one preceded the other, I think it's pretty clear, at least from Lafayette, and this is from Lafayette's own like recounting of his of his own life, is that from a very early age, he's raised in the sword nobility and he is expected to go off and have a career in the army. That is what all of his ancestors had done. That's what his father had done. Uh, it's what he expected to do himself. And so he, he grows up from childhood wanting to go off and, and make his mark in the world, uh, maybe win a glorious battle, you know, you, you know, win the medals, win the acclaim, like do something great that would make, uh, that would make his name famous. Um, so I think that that's sort of the first thing that's, that is motivating him as he, as he looks around and like, is what, what, what am I going to do with my life? And when he ultimately gets, you know, when he's 18 years old, he gets reformed out of the army. There's a, there's a bunch of reforms that happen uh, as a result of the French army, everybody deciding that maybe the French army being run by a bunch of aristocratic 18 year olds who have never fought in battle is maybe not the best way to run an army. And so he gets put on a reserve list and suddenly his, uh, his, the career path that he had always imagined for himself in the French army is now cut off. And this is truly like this is the impetus for him then looking around for someplace that he could go to make his mark on the world, to have adventures, to win some glory. Um, and that's what's going to lead him across the Atlantic to joining the Continental Army. But at the same time, Lafayette also from a very young age does have a certain uh, political and social idealism. Uh, the, the ideas of liberty, the ideas of, of equality the ideas of progress um, were, were very much sort of in vogue among French uh, intellectual circles and among, uh, among, you know, basically educated, educated people on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, the French Enlightenment had been going on for decades at this point. And Lafayette is somebody who, as a teenager, uh, imbibed all of these ideas. So when, he, when he's looking like, what am I going to do now that I've been placed on the reserve list of the French army? He sees in the Americans and in the American revolt uh, and in in their struggle for independence, they are doing something that is like they're trying to achieve in reality these abstract notions of liberty, equality and republicanism that he himself did believe in. So he doesn't really have to choose one or the other. These two things, they just go right together. And he's like, this is this is actually perfect. I'm going to be able to go over there. I'm going to be able to fight for a cause. And it, it won't just be about me as a mercenary winning battles as a soldier, uh, it will be about me winning battles on behalf of a glorious cause, right? And the Americans were already, you know, already defining their struggle, not just in uh, raw economic terms of taxation without representation and, uh, you know, those kinds of like uh, the things that triggered the revolt, but also just these broader abstract notions of, uh, you know, we should be able to participate in our government, we should have a constitution, we should have a bill of rights, like those things were already uh, being kicked around amongst the people who rose up against the British and Lafayette was happy to join right into the middle of that. And so he's really he's getting both sides of it, right? He gets to fight his battles like he always wanted to, and he gets to do it for a glorious and idealistic cause, which he also always wanted to do.
So he he gets to he gets right into the the mix and he really gets in with the right person, George Washington. Uh, take a moment, like describe George Washington and Lafayette's relationship and how they became so close. And then also, why did Americans more or less as a whole fall in love with Lafayette? Well, I, I think you can work backwards to that because the, the reason why Americans fall in love with Lafayette originally is that when he comes over, like he's a French marquis who is um, who is known to be in the inner social circle of like the king and queen of France. This makes him a big deal. Like even if you're a bunch of Anglo Protestant farmers, uh, you know, who are trying to uh, establish their own republic, you you still can't help but be impressed by. Uh, somebody with this kind of pedigree showing up on your shores and saying, I, I would, I would like to join your struggle. I would like to fight for you. Um, Lafayette is incredibly rich. For example, he's one of the, he's actually one of the richest men in France. Um, and so when he comes over, rather than what most of the French officers who were sailing across the Atlantic to join the cause were doing is uh, demanding exorbitant salaries. Like I'll come be a general in your army. If you give me like a million dollars a week, uh, these are the kinds of exorbitant demands that other European officers are making of the second continental Congress or of, uh, or of George Washington. Lafayette comes over and he's like, Oh, don't worry about it. I'm rich. I'll pay my own way. And they're like, okay, that's amazing. We, we like, we like that. Um, and then also all these European officers, almost none of them bothered to learn English, you know, just as a very, as, on a very basic level in terms of like, how can we communicate with each other? Uh, Lafayette went out of his way to learn English. And even though he spoke it in, in kind of a stilted way, especially in his early years, like that kind of, um, you know, th this demonstration, this generosity of spirit that he had and came over here with, and, and also, even though he had this aristocratic pedigree, having this real humility, uh, even to uh, somebody like George Washington, where Washington thinks, oh, here comes this, you know, this rich teenager who's going to come over and try to tell me my business. Uh, and Lafayette's like, no, I'm, I'm not here to teach you anything. I'm here to learn from you. And so the relationship then, th this sweeps him into Washington's tent, um, because the leaders of the American rebellion in the Second Continental Congress and in the Continental Army, we're talking about like, Ben Franklin or Henry Lawrence or George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they know that getting the French on their side is ultimately what is going to help them actually win the war. Um, and through 1776 and 1777, a lot of what George Washington has tried to do is just hang in there long enough to get the French to openly declare war on the British, at which point they will probably be able to, um, uh, to achieve independence. And so when Washington, when Lafayette walks into Washington's tent, Washington is very uh, is very generous with Lafayette because he Washington, at least initially, is cultivating Lafayette for political reasons. Like this is a very important person who has a direct channel back to the king of France and will help us win the war. So Washington is saying, oh, I, I would love for you to you know stay in my tent and join my family. And what Washington is saying here, this is Washington just referred to his the officers around him as his military family, just joined my family. Uh, and Lafayette heard this, though, because of a little bit of the just the, uh, the language barrier. He believes that Washington is inviting him into his personal household. And for Lafayette, the thing that's going on here, we haven't talked about this, but, you know, he was orphaned at a very young age. His, his father, Lafayette's father, was killed in battle when he was two years old. 
and his mother died when he was, uh, uh, I think, 12 years old. So he he was lacking a father figure, Lafayette was, and he was just lacking parents in general. He was he was an orphan. And so when when this sort of great man, George Washington, who who had international fame at this point, is saying, like, I want you to join my family. I mean, Lafayette just lit up and believed that Washington was essentially uh, offering to be his surrogate father, the, the father that Lafayette never really the father that Lafayette never really had. And I don't think that in that moment, Washington was actually making that offer. I don't think he was looking at Lafayette and saying like, oh, yes, I definitely want this guy to be my surrogate son. But in the weeks and then months and then years that they spent together, I think that this relationship really did develop where Lafayette always looked up to Washington as something like a surrogate father. And, you know, despite all of his outward stoic reserve uh, and his unwillingness to really show affection in any way in public, uh, Washington starts to return this paternal affection and really consider Lafayette to be something special. And uh, Lafayette could get away with things that other officers and other people in Washington's entourage absolutely could not. I mean, you, people were not allowed to even touch George Washington. And like Lafayette could come up and like kiss him on both cheeks and be like, oh, mon cher general, you know, and, and really uh, like physically embrace him in ways that made the other continental officers be like, oh my God, like, that, you know, there's really something going on here in terms of uh, them having a unique and special bond, which I think I think was true during the war. And then it lasted really for the rest of their lives. Washington dies in 1799. And even as an old man, uh, Lafayette is still thinking about and talking about Washington as, you know, the, the greatest role model of his entire life. Yeah. And your your book does a, a great job of sort of highlighting um, that relationship between the two from the American Revolution, even during the French Revolution, which Lafayette continued to keep Washington abreast of the situation. Uh, going into the French Revolution, what was Lafayette's role during the French Revolution? So Lafayette, uh, as I said, really from a young age, um, sort of imbibed all of this idealistic uh, rhetoric of political reform. And he was in, in a mix, in a group of what I would call young liberal nobles, many of whom, uh, it just so happens just because of the way things work out, many of whom wound up serving in the United States in, uh, because France ultimately does send uh, uh, an expeditionary force under General Rochambeau. Many of the young officers who were all nobles came over, served in the United States, and did look around and, and did see some of the things that were being talked about in books or in the salons in France actually being put into practice in the United States. They all come back after the end of the war, which is in the early, eight, uh, excuse me, the early 1780s. And they're looking at uh, uh, the kingdom of France, which its tax system is broken. Its military system is broken. Its social system is broken. Like its economy is in shambles. The, the monarchy itself is practically bankrupt. Uh, and they're like, gosh, you know, every single part of this needs to be reformed along rational, reasonable and idealistic lines like things can't go on like this. And so Lafayette joins uh, a group of reformers 
who would like to change the way the, king, the kingdom of France operates. They would like to have something like a constitution. They would like to have something like rational administration. They would like to have uh, an opportunity to uh, tax the wealthiest parts of society in order to pay for the things that the state needed to do, because one of the great problems with Ancien Regime France is that uh, if you were rich and you were a noble, one of the things that was the best thing about being a rich noble is you were exempt from taxation. And so even something as little as instituting rational tax policy uh, would have gone a long way towards stabilizing the regime. And Lafayette's just in the middle of this. He's, he's, very, he's incredibly famous, right? He's one of the most famous people in France for having gone over to the United States and served with, uh, with glorious distinction. And this is, by this point, he's called the hero of two worlds, which is, um, you know, obviously the name of the book. And so he, he's pushing for this reform, but these guys are running up against a very intransigent uh, aristocracy that does not want to sacrifice their privileges. They've earned, they believe they've earned these privileges. They believe that these privileges are locked in by, uh, 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 by, feudal, uh, by feudal contracts that were centuries old. They believe that God was ordaining the social order of things. And that to have these people challenging all of that and trying to alter it and change it and make it more modern, uh, they were just going to fight it tooth and nail. And so those two forces, the, the forces of reform and the forces of conservative reaction, just kept running into each other. It created, I think, deadlock. Nothing got done. The French monarchy ultimately does go bankrupt by 1788. And as a result, we get 1789, which is the French Revolution. In the which Lafayette was uh, by that point completely in favor of, right? He didn't. I don't think that. I don't think Lafayette walked back into France, hoping to have the French Revolution. I think that he was hoping that him and his sort of uh, liberal comrades would be able to reform the system in order to save it. But then, when it was clear that the system and the people running the system didn't want to be saved, then it was just time for a revolution. How did? Uh... How did he survive the revolution? Because, you know, the king is the king and queen escape. And, uh, you know, he was he was blamed for that, even though he recaptured him. But I know Robespierre and many others uh, accused him of being a royalist. How did he survive when so many people, including Robespierre, did not? Yeah. So we fast forward from 1789 and things have changed quite a bit. Um, and sort of Lafayette's model of wanting a constitutional monarchy with a bill of rights and, and a rational tax system is now running up against a more extreme vision for what the revolution ought to be, which is, uh, which is uh, radicals in the Jacobin party, or like you say, Robespierre and Danton, who would like to have a straight up republic. Like, why do we even need kings anymore? Why do we even need an aristocracy? Let's just have a republic. I mean, after all, that's that is what they did in the United States. And you yourself, you know, Lafayette, you, you fought for a republic. So, so let's go ahead and, uh, and just overthrow the monarchy. And Lafayette thought that this went too far too fast. And so he resisted the push to go all the way towards overthrowing the monarchy and declaring the first French republic, which, yes, gets him labeled as a royalist. They label him as somebody who is a traitor to the revolution, who is an enemy of the revolution. And by 1792, when the sort of what we what we might call the second French Revolution, which happens in August of 1792, with the out and out overthrow of the monarchy and the declaration of the republic, Lafayette is an enemy 
and seen as an enemy by the people who staged that insurrection in August of 1792. And one of the first things that Georges Danton does uh, when he becomes minister of justice in this post post-revolutionary regime is issue an arrest warrant for the Marquis de Lafayette for various crimes against the people. And Lafayette, it happens to be out on the front lines of a war that is now going on between France and like the rest of Europe. And he has to decide, do I answer this arrest warrant and go back to Paris and, and, you know, stand before my accusers? Or do I take a look at things and say, you know what, if I go back, they're probably going to kill me. And uh, he decides to run across the line. So he, him and him and some other loyal officers, they just get on their horses, cross the lines into what is today Belgium. And uh, his plan is that he's going to make for the coast and get on a boat and sail to the United States where everybody still loves him. And where he, if he had made it, he probably would have just resettled permanently in the United States. And we'd be talking about the Marquis de Lafayette who escaped the French Revolution and came and lived with us forever. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. The Austrians picked him up. And even as he's running away from people who say he's a traitor to the revolution, the Austrians see him as one of the original instigators of the revolution because they know who Lafayette is. They know he was one of the people in 1787, 1788, 1789 who led the revolution in the first place. And so they're like, well, you're, you know, you're the author of all of these misfortunes. You're the reason King Louis has been overthrown. So we're going to throw you in a dungeon. And they threw him, they did, they threw him in a dungeon. He, for five years, he lived in virtual uh, solitary confinement in various dungeons in Prussia and Austria. And that's basically why he survives the French Revolution. Uh, if he had been caught at all uh, in France, he would have, uh, I would give it 100%, uh, 100% chance that he would have gotten his head chopped off at some point. But instead, he was, uh, you know, he nearly died in his isolated confinement. But that's that's why he lived. And by the time he gets out in 1797, there had been so many more changes in, you know, Robespierre had already been overthrown. We've already got the Termidorian reaction. Um, and uh, the political climate had changed such that he was in stages allowed to come back to France and sort of live in a in a semi uh, semi autonomous or excuse me, semi anonymous retirement it's interesting. Uh, saves his life by uh, getting in the dungeon. I guess that's sort of jumping out of the fire into the frying pan. Yeah, he he goes backwards. Yeah, he didn't jump out of the he didn't jump out of the frying pan into the fire. He jumped out of the fire into the frying pan. Yeah. Now, last question, man. Uh, two, you know, great individuals or high, extremely high profile individuals, and just world history from these two revolutions, Washington and Napoleon. How did Lafayette view Washington versus Napoleon? Right. Yeah. Um, I think so. Lafayette, again, the things that you don't think you know about the guy until you really start researching it is that while he's living in this like sort of semi anonymous retirement, uh, the guy who got him out of prison was Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, it was Napoleon's victories against the Austrians in Italy that eventually is what gets Lafayette released from from jail. And so he begins this relationship with Napoleon Bonaparte. 
and they're, they're, they are personally interacting with each other. They're meeting with each other. They're writing letters to each other. And initially, Lafayette is very impressed with Bonaparte. And many people in Europe are. He, he appears to be the person who's going to be the personification of all that was good about the revolution without any of the bad, chaotic, you know, anarchistic uh, terror stuff that also went on. But as Napoleon starts to turn more authoritarian in 1802 and 1803 and 1804, Lafayette really, really sours on him. And Bonaparte becomes one of the few people that Lafayette really kind of detests and does not and does not support at all. And I think that all of it goes back to George Washington being his model for leadership. And we all know, like George, like the, the myths and legends about what George Washington did in terms of setting aside power that was in his that was in his hands. Those aren't myths and legends. Those are that's a real thing that George Washington did. He was the most powerful, the most influential person in what was about to become the United States. He was leading a, a, a huge army, you know, the, the largest armed forces, you know, in on the continent. And instead of using this to make himself King George the First of the United States, or using this to make himself Emperor George uh, of the Americans, he sets he gives his sword back to Congress. And says, I'm going to step away from power because I don't think that a single person should have that much power and authority. I am going to uh, deny myself what is clearly there for the taking. If George Washington had wanted to, I think he could have made himself King George. Um, he would have been a constitutional monarch, obviously, but he would have been some kind of monarch. I think maybe it could have happened. Uh, but he didn't do it. And this becomes Washington, or excuse me, this becomes Lafayette's model for what a good selfless, disinterested uh, Republican leader actually looks like. And so when he sees uh, Napoleon Bonaparte making the opposite choices, like Napoleon has some power and he's going to grab a little bit more. When he's got a little bit more, he's going to grab even more. And then by 1804, he's like, I'm declaring myself emperor, turning his back on all the revolutionary principles that he had that he had espoused earlier in his career when he was trying to climb the rungs uh, in the first place. So I think that as when Lafayette looks at Bonaparte, who then, you know, we fast forward to 1814 and 1815 uh, and Napoleon's getting defeated at Waterloo, you know, who's standing in the office with Napoleon saying, sire, it's time for you to go. It's Lafayette. Lafayette's the one who's actually telling Bonaparte, either you resign or, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. Um, so, so I do think that it was, uh, the model of Washington and Lafayette's head that makes him so opposed to the Napoleonic empire. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks again for being on the show. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the name of the book is hero of two worlds. You gotta get it. Uh, Mike, where can people get your book? Oh, they can get my book wherever fine books are sold. Um, I have, however, been encouraging as much as possible, you know, like uh, we all went through COVID and every every shop and every business uh, in the world just went through COVID and it was very bad times for everybody. And like one of the things that happened was, you know, various online retailers uh, wound up, you know, they did great during COVID because they could just because uh, it was all it was all delivery based, whereas brick and mortar stores, I think, kind of uh, took it in the chin quite a bit. And so, uh, so wh whoever's listening to this, um, somewhere close to you, there's a local independent bookstore uh, that is trying to get back on its feet, that is trying to stay in business. And I would love for every single sale of Hero of Two Worlds to be rung through 
those local independent bookstore, uh, those local independent booksellers, um, as opposed to just, you know, clicking submit on an online order, which I know is easy and we all do it. Uh, but if you can, uh, if you can take a, a moment to think of your local businesses, um, that's where I would love for people to get the book. My friend, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I actually greatly appreciate you, you saying that. And, uh, I know Alan and I, we totally agree with that sentiment. Absolutely. One more quick question to ask you. Sure. Uh, did someone really say Lafayette, we are here. And was it Colonel Charles Stanton or was it General uh, Jack Pershing? Uh, it was whoever the first guy was. Cause I know, like I, all I know, I mean, that was said. Um, and you know, it was, it was built up in terms of, uh, you know, it, there was a lot of good propaganda. Hey, that was made out of it in World War One as uh, the United States joined the, the what we then call the Allied Powers. Um, but I know that it wasn't Pershing, right? And uh, but there was, but there was a thing. They they went to Lafayette's grave, and there are pictures of Pershing at the grave, sort of like uh, you know taking pictures with this friend of America, because Lafayette is um, is a symbol of Franco of the Franco-American alliance, and you know he always wanted France and the United States to be strong friends and. Uh, you know, if anybody's been watching the news lately, uh, this is probably going to be out of date here pretty quick because they'll patch it up. But like, you know, France just withdrew its ambassadors over, you know, some some nuclear submarine sale. And, you know, I can just Lafayette itching to get out of his coffin so he can patch things up between France and the United States so we can go back to being friends. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to know. Uh, yeah, it was be, be Colonel Charles Stanton. But uh Here's the book, and yes, if you can get this, um, Books in the Woods might have it. Yeah, Good Books in the Woods. Yeah, a friend of ours. So, yeah, absolutely. Mike, thank you again very much. We greatly appreciate it. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the book. I knew I'd enjoy the conversation, too. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, thank you so much, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Mike Duncan, the author of Hero of Two Worlds. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Alan, what'd you think, brother? Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation because I've always been a fan of the Marquis de Lafayette for, uh, for quite some time. And it's great to have someone, um, you know, on our show who is quite the expert on him. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, he does a, a great thorough job, uh, going from be, you know, beginning of his life to the end. Um, and it's crazy that he was such a pivotal part of two revolutions, uh, two of the major revolutions, uh, one that affected this side of the world and the other one that affected the European side. Uh, so crazy, man. Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, go get the book. And speaking of books, book and movie recommendations. Uh, you ready, Dr. Kevorkian? You know what? Ready, Dr. Doolittle? I have... Should I call you Dr. Doolittle or what? What am I going to call you? Dr. No, no, no. no. I forget. I forget. You got to come up with a different name. Mine is Dr. Doolittle for you because you're a big Doolittle Raider fan. Yeah. All right. I'll come up with, uh, I'll come up with something. Uh, give me, give me a week. Give me a week and I'll come up with a name for you. I'll give you to the end of the year. How about that? Because come next week, you'll have forgotten. All right. So I think you and I both have the same book recommendation. It is Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a thick book, as it should be, with somebody who has played such a massive role in world history. Um, 
And honestly, man, Mike Duncan, one of the most successful podcasters, history podcasters in the history of podcasting, in the history of history podcasting, but also a fine writer. He is a very good writer, too. I have to say that. I will have to most agree with you, Doctor, and I've got my little copy right here, Hero of Two Worlds. You know, there's, uh, you know, I'll tell you this. Now, I've read up quite a bit about him during the revolution and just prior to the revolution. What I did not really read was what happened to him during the French Revolution. Um, you know, I just assumed a lot of these guys, either something bad happened to them or they just, you know, tried to hide, played a quiet role. But uh, now, you know, those, uh, those questions have been answered. Uh, you know, I've got the opportunity to sit and read about what happened to the man and uh, very, very lucky guy. He didn't get, uh, you know. You talk about like lucky, like he was in some really tight situations. And yes, the reference of, yeah, um, he was in some tight situations somehow got out of them. He knew how to talk to people. Um, he knew it's almost like he just knew what to do. Um, or as George Washington would, would call it divine providence. Um, all right. Movie recommendation. Um, I'm going to go first because we're talking about the French, one of the great French actors, Jean Renault, uh, from Ronan. This is one of my favorite movies. I had it on DVD. Yes, I do have the cover. But I had it on DVD. I opened it the other day. I was going to watch it. And there it is. Empty. Still got the case. I don't know why. Maybe I'll run across the, the DVD itself. And yes, I've got a DVD player. It's actually a Blu-ray disc player. Okay, so uh, give me that. Uh, but yeah, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno. It's one, of the, it's one of the cooler movies that you'll come across. So if, you haven't, if you've never checked it out... It is well done, well written, well acted, and a very cool action flick. Very CIA-esque. Well, I don't think I gave anything away there, so. Okay. Well, mine was, uh, it was meant to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the Spanish-American War called the Rough Riders. And, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is like a who's who of, uh, of, uh, Tough guys, you know, toxic masculinity. Uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. It's a two-part series. It was uh, real good. You know, it's about you know Teddy Roosevelt and the, uh, or Roosevelt rather, and the Rough Riders that uh, stormed San Juan Hill. Even though it really wasn't, you know, kind of. Well, never mind. Just watch, watch the, uh, watch the movie, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. But to see who was in this movie, like I said, it's kind of a who's who of uh, toxic masculinity. And that includes Tom Berenger, Sam Elliott, Gary Busey, Dale Dye, Brian Keith, our good friend Arlie Ermey, the late great Arlie Ermey, and then two other guys, Brad Johnson and Chris Knopf. Chris Knopf, of course, uh, Mr. Big or whatever his name was in Sex and the City. So, yep. Good. Uh, you know, so the girls will want to watch it because of Chris Knopf. See Mr. Big or Big or whatever. Yeah, I'm was. sure that's then, exactly uh, why they'll watch it. And then everybody else, we can all see it because Gary Boosie and Arlie Ermey and Sam Elliott. But yeah, good story. Very good story. It shows the beginning of the Rough Riders and uh, what they accomplished. Awesome. Fantastic. I've never watched that movie. I've never seen it. Um, but I, if if you think it's good, then I would, uh, yeah, I'll give it a watch. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's not 100% accurate. Uh, there were some things about it that I'm like going, yeah, you know, but, but overall, overall, 
you know, like some of the characters, little fictionalized in just a, just a bit, but overall, it's a pretty accurate movie. It's a very entertaining movie, and uh, you know, I think everybody should watch it. If you want to know a little bit more about the Spanish-American War, it doesn't cover the whole war, just just one aspect of it. Very cool. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our show to an end. Alan, you are way off in another world. You are a hero of two worlds. That's what you are to me. Where can people find us? Well, they can find us on Facebook. They can, uh, Be sure to like us on Facebook. Uh, then there's Instagram. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram. And then there's YouTube. Uh, be sure to subscribe us on subscribe to us on our youtube page now and finally we have our very own website www.thesonsofhistory.com that's right and you know i should i should mention you can get like some of our merchandise on that website i don't know if we're still selling this particular mug but we do sell mugs yeah I we got some because uh... i'm drinking coffee yeah. Well, wow. Yeah. You're going to be up all night. Yeah. We've got uh coffee mugs. We've got t-shirts. Uh, yeah. Go check it out, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet. Um, and also if you're listening strictly on the podcast, whether you're whatever podcast platform you're listening to, be sure to subscribe. And also if you could do us a huge favor and leave us a rating and a review, it'd be a huge help. Otherwise that's it. We hope that you enjoyed the show. Tell your friends about us, tell your loved ones about us. And even at the funeral, mention us in the eulogy. We'll be talking to you later. Have a great week.